0: For this week's episode, we have author Daniel Abraham on the show. He'll be reading from his book, Age of Ash, and we'll have a little conversation. I'm Jude Brewer. Welcome to Storybound. So you were saying that your first live reading you did in the fifth grade
1: we had an assignment with we all did our little journaling thing you know they spent an hour with our our little pens and paper and this is back in the ancient days before keyboards were a thing um and i you know i was i was i don't know what other kids were writing but i was writing these cheesy little horror things i was writing you know the the scenes without a plot and just little jump scares and and then at the end the teacher would give us the chance to share if we wanted to And i always wanted to i you know i never didn't want to and it it went over pretty well, you know. I was, uh, I had had my
0: uh, same level of sophistication as my audience. We spoke to each other. At, uh, <laughs> right, worked out nicely. So then, tell me, how did you get into doing radio? Where did that little itch start for you?
1: Well, I, I listened to a lot of radio. I mean, we were we were an NPR family growing up. I heard a lot of voices and listened to you know, whatever the equivalent of This American Life was at the time. And uh, yeah, it just seemed, seemed really cool. And then I, I went and I, there was a mentorship program at my high school. I get to go see people who were actually in the professions that I was thinking about and see what it was really like. And it turned out it was awful. It was just it involved a lot of sitting around with a razor cutting magnetic tape off of spools until my fingers bled. It was, it was the, 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 you know, the glamour faded quickly. It was, right. uh, it was not a thing. But the program also had some science fiction authors and I was able to switch over to to that and spent months of my Saturdays going up to Fred Saberhagen's Higgins' house and having him look at what I was doing and and telling me what he thought about it and what I was doing wrong and talk about the kind of career and the work of it and the the art of it, the kind of both sides. And that was really important. I mean, Fred was really my first professional mentor. I've been lucky, I've had a lot of them. I mean, the community of science fiction and fantasy writers has been very, very good to me. And I'm I'm coming to the age now when I'm starting to figure out how to, how to pay that back, how to pay that forward. Um, and it's, it's, I think, part of the good thing, part of the best thing about this particular uh, genre and community. course of a single life. a man can be many things. A beloved child in a brightly embroidered gown, a street tough with a band of knife men walking at his side. lover to a beautiful girl, husband to an honest woman, father to a child, grain sweeper in a brewery, widower, musician, and mendicant coughing his lungs up outside the city walls. The only thing they have in common is that they are the same man. These are the mysteries and there is a beauty in them. In this way, Kithamar is a beautiful city. Beautiful city. All through its streets, Kithamar shows the signs and remnants of the cities that the city has been. Walls that defended the border of a younger town stand a dumbfounded, useless guard between the noble compounds of Greenhill and the Fountain Square at Stone Market. The great battlements of Oldgate glower out over the river, its arrow slits and murder holes used for candle niches now. And the enemy races who stormed or manned it sleep side by side in its armories because the rents are cheap. Now the river is the heart of the city, dividing and uniting it. Ancient races killed one another and swore eternal hatred only to bury their enmity and pretend to be a single people citizens of one city kithamar has declared itself the subject of the one true god or the three or the numberless for 300 years and longer it has been a free city independent and proud ruled by princes of its own rather than any distant king only today its prince is dead the reign of Bernasal had been brief. Less than a year before, the streets had filled with revelers and wine, music and joy, and more than a little imprudent sex to celebrate the great man's coronation. The months between then and now were turbulent, marked by ill omens and violence, a winter of troubled sleep. Now as the first light of the coming dawn touches the highest reaches of the palace towering at the top of its hill, the red gates open on his funeral procession. Two old women dressed in rags step out and strike drums. Black, blinded horses follow, their steps echoing against stone. And all along the route, the men and women and children who are Kithamar wait. They have been there since nightfall, some of them. They love the spectacle of death and the performance of grief. And though few of them say the words aloud, they hope the season of darkness will end and something new begin. Only a few of them ask their questions aloud. How did it happen? Was it illness or accident? Murder or the vengeance of God? How did Bern die? The black lacquered cart passes among the gardens and mansions of Greenhill. The heads of the high families stand at their entrances as if ready to make the dead man welcome if he should stand up. Servants and children and ill-dignified cousins gawk from the bushes and corners. Only the burned-out shell of the daurus brotherhood ignores the funeral. And then the body passes into the city proper, heading first for a stone market, and then south through the dark streets of the smoke. Those lucky enough to have buildings along the route have rented space at their windows and on their roofs. As the death cart shifts and jutters across the cobblestones, people jockey to look at the corpse. Behind the cart follow the highest dignified of the city. The dead man's daughter, soon prince herself, Elena Sal, rides behind her father in a dark litter. She wears rags, but also a silver torque. Her chin is lifted and her face is expressionless. The eyes of the city drink her in, trying to find some sign in the angle of her spine or the dryness of her eyes to tell whether she's a girl hardly old enough to be called woman drowning in shock and despair, or else a murderess and patricide struggling to contain her triumph. Either way, she will rule the city tomorrow, and all these same people will dance at her coronation. Behind her, the favorite of the old prince walk. Mikael, the palace historian, in an ash-streaked robe. Old Carson's son, Halev, who had been Bernassal's confidant and advisor. Samal Kint, the head of the palace guard, carrying a blunted sword. Then more, all wearing gray, all with ashes on their hands. When they reach the bridge at the edge of the smoke, yellow stone and black mortar, they stop. A priest walks out to meet them, chanting and shaking the censer of sweet incense. They perform the rites of protection to keep the river from washing away the dead man's soul. Everyone knows the water is hungry. The rite complete, the funeral procession passes through the wider streets of seawater past the brewers' houses and canals where flatboats stand bowed astern so thick that a girl could have walked from one side of the canal to the other, and not gotten her hem wet. Midday comes. The early summer sun makes its arc more slowly than it did a few weeks before, and the cart is only just turning northeast to make its way along the dividing line between Riverport and Newmarket. Flies as fat as thumbnails buzz around the cart, and the horses slap at them with their tails. Wherever the funeral procession is, the crowd thickens, only to evaporate when it has passed. Once the last of the honor guard rounds the corner, leaving seat water behind, The brewers' houses reopen, the iron gates on their side start accepting wagers again. Delivery men spend barrels down the streets on their edges with the practiced skill of jugglers. It is almost sunset before the funeral procession reaches the temple. The bloody western skyline is interrupted by the black hill of the palace. The colored windows of the temple glow. Full dark takes the streets like spilling ink before for the last song echoes in the heights above the great altar and the body of Bernasal purified by the mourning of his subjects and the prayers of his priesthood comes out to the pyre. His daughter should light the oil-stinking wood but she stays still until young Carson, her father's friend, comes and takes the torch from her hand. The term for the night between the funeral of the old prince and the coronation of the new one is Gautana. It is an ancient Inlisk word that means roughly the pause at the top of a breath when the lungs are most full. Literally, it translates as the moment of hollowness. For one night, Kithamar is a city between worlds and between ages. It falls out of its own history. At once, the end of something and the beginning of something else. The skeptical among the citizens, and Kithamar has more than its share of the amiably godless. Call it tradition and merely a story that says something about the character of the city, its hopes and aspirations, the fears and uncertainties that come in moments of change. That may be true, but there is something profound and eerie about the streets. The rush of the river seems to have words in it. The small magics of Kithimard were quiet as mice scenting a cat. The clatter of horseshoes against stone echoes differently. The city guard in their blue cloaks make their rounds quietly or decide that for one night they might as well not make them at all. Outside the city, the southern track where by daylight teams of oxen haul boats against the current is quiet and deserted apart from one lone bearded man. He sits at the base of a white birch, his back against the bark. The small glass bead in his hand would be red if there were light enough to see it. Under the northernmost of Old Gate's four bridges, a girl sits up, listening to the water. She has a round face, gently curling hair, and a knife held in her fist. She is waiting for a meeting that she dreads as much as she longs for it.
0: I believe it was in reference to your Long Price Quartet series when you talked about massive time jumps where a character sees a lot of change within the specific era they live within. And you would liken that to your grandmother's experience that she had grown up in a world without cell phones and died in a world with cell phones. For myself, I guess it would have to be the internet. I grew up in a world without it and eventually die in a world with it. So how has experiencing more time yourself changed your perception of time? The big
1: thing that my getting older, has done for me is it has made it clear what problems are not gonna be solved in my lifetime. When I was a kid, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, racism is bad, we're gonna fix that. And I was like, yeah, I'm I'm no longer so sure we're gonna make
0: it to the finish line while I'm still around. Right, like what problems are solvable within our lifetime?
1: Solvable and what problems are just part of the human experience and always have been I've come more and more to understand that there are conflicts that are just conflicts. They're just perennial. And I, when I was younger, and, and partly driven by the kind of, you know, you put the right king on the throne and the, the land flourishes thinking, um, there was this idea that there was a solution, that a solution existed, as opposed to there's this conversation that just keeps going on and, uh, you know, eventually you die and the next generation starts having the same arguments.
0: There's still more conversation ahead. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Hey, you're listening to Storybound with author Daniel Abraham. We're chatting about his book Age of Ash.
1: If you look at my experience in, in high school, the things that were really the absolute most important, the things that really prepared me for the life I've, I've wound up leading were uh, role-playing games in theater. Right. That's kind of what I do now. Sure, and theater was that way for me as well. It was good for problem solving in the moment. And you get to really imagine being somebody besides yourself. Speaking
0: of, what is writing with
1: a pseudonym? How does that change writing for you? The thing that, that has been most interesting for that is the degree to which my actual name has sort of slid off into being a pseudonym, too. I know the kind of stuff Daniel Abraham writes. I can write a Daniel Abraham book. I can write a James S. A. Corey book, you know, with Ty. Of course, that's part of the gig. I can write an M.L. and Hanover book. It feels actually very healthy to me to have the distance between who I am and who uh, other people are reacting to and kind of who they're judging my joke is that uh i don't actually write for money i don't i i, I was writing before they gave me any money i'm going to keep writing after they stop giving me money i don't <laughs> write for money what i do for
0: money is suffer the casual judgment of strangers sure and it would be really nice obviously if we could just put out art and not necessarily have to deal with the judgment of strangers but it is for them and doesn't belong to us anymore once once it leaves us And for them, it's an internal experience that we largely have very little control over. It
1: is. Now, the the thing that's weird for writers is the reviews of the book aren't actually reviews of the book, right? They're not reviews of the story. They're reviews of a performance of the story by the reader, for the reader, to which we have no access. Um, What what we do is uh, provide... Instructions for massive guided meditations. There are readers, and I, you know, I, I say this from a position of uh, financial stability. There, some readers are bad. <laughs> So, sure. yeah sometimes sometimes somebody reads one of my books and thinks this was a stupid book and I think you're not my audience. that's this is not actually on me. Um, that's fine.
0: that's that's okay. They're just not meditating to the same wavelengths that you are.
1: They're doing some they're, they, and and they don't
0: there are people who have spent their lives re,
1: as readers who are really good at imagining things. They're really good at, they're sophisticated, they're, they're, um, they're like, you know, the Royal Shakespeare Company of imagining shit in their head. And then there are people who, for whatever reason, their internal Shakespeare company is more of the kind of high school guys that we were when we were getting up there and declaiming Romeo and Juliet in front of our peer group. And it can be the same text. It can be the same story. And the
0: performance, one of those performances is just going to be better. You spend a great deal of time making the tech in your books feel plausible. So I wanna understand more about blending that line between prospective tech thinking and sufficiently advanced tech as indistinguishable from magic thinking. What is the place of scientific plausibility in sci-fi as you see it?
1: Well, you've, you've found the magic word, which is plausibility. When Ty and I are doing the Expanse books, we're really reaching for things that set uh, a tone for the world that we're in and set a, uh, an expectation of what it feels like to live there and doesn't break your suspension of disbelief as much. I mean, we've always talked about it as reaching for a Wikipedia uh, level of plausibility. And then after that, we're telling a story. So, you know, the decision to have inertia work the way inertia works that was, you know, that was Ty's world building. I came into that world and the idea was to make it feel grounded and make it feel realistic and make it feel like, you know, something you would actually learn about your physics class so that when something miraculous happens in the story, it feels like a shock. If you start off your story with gravity plating and inertialist drives, then when something breaks inertia, it's really not a big deal because you've been doing that since page two. Right. Uh, yeah. So there's a certain point at which the story tells you about what the tech level and level of groundedness needs to be in order to tell that story. If the rules are just convenient and they're whatever you needed to be for the scene, uh, readers can smell that. That's uh, not good work, that's bad craft. But once you've set them, then yeah, you kind of get to do whatever the story
0: is within those. There's still a bit more conversation ahead. We'll be right back after this final commercial break. Hey, you're listening to Storybound with author Daniel Abraham. We've been chatting about his book Age of Ash, as well as a host of other little tiny rants. So, yeah, I mean, I think part of
1: what's happening right now, part of what's happening with me is I'm looking at the assumptions and uh, the axiomatic stuff that I accepted for uh, what education was and what it should be. And then I'm looking at the people I know who are successful and how many of them actually went through that and how many did something else and how broad and diverse the pathways to success have been for the people who I know. And last week I was hanging out with a guy who dropped out of high school.
0: And, uh, and now he's Adam Savage. <laughs> sure, and you know, not everyone's path is the same. Mine was very difficult. I was not all adept with academics. In fact, I resisted it. And when it comes to my stepdaughters, I try and you know turn everything into a lesson. So the other day when they're in the studio and they're looking at my old desktop computer, my old PC, I took it apart, I said, yeah, I built this for $400. You know, I did this several times as I was growing up in high school, I loved putting together a computer and I explained all the different components to them, how they worked, I related it to a smartphone and how these smartphones are really more like dozens of computers if not hundreds combined these days and they're just in this smaller compact device and just trying to distill everything down and explain it, you know, in ways that felt uh, applicable to their everyday life. My daughter was uh,
1: helping a, a fine arts fabricator where you uh, know, build his shop. And it involves, you know, running Cat5 cable, ringing it, make sure it works, you know, testing the connections. She spent the this morning, she spent most of the, the morning surveying his backyard with him and figuring out the construction plan for next week. I mean, would she be more educated? Would she be better educated by discussing kind of a high school level of geometry maybe but she's figuring out a lot of geometry by actually putting the strings where they need to go and figuring out if things were level and drawing the pictures there's a lot of paths into the life of the mind and
0: and the life of the body is one path i mean that's one path into it right and what you're talking about with your daughter is she's actually getting to apply the methods of of this math to to a hands-on experience.
1: And the thing that we know, we know this, and I'm going off on a tangent on education, and I'm not actually an educator, <laughs> but
0: but I'm still going to hold forth with opinions. <laughs> sure, have your opinion. shout them from the rooftop. We're all, the,
1: but, but the one thing, I mean, my, my wife is an occupational therapist. She did a certain amount of, you know, psychology classes when she was in university. And one of the things that we know about learning is that the modality where people sit quietly in a chair for an hour and receive information um, and then regurgitate it is a shitty way to do it. It's just the one we do. (laughs) We all know it's bad. All the teachers are up there with their degrees in education going, there are better ways to do this. We're just not
0: gonna. Sure, and to all the teachers out there who are applying more progressive methods, thank you for doing that. You know, it's not easy. And uh, Daniel, I just really wanted to thank you for having this chat with me and going on some little rants today. I-, I really enjoyed it. Happy to be here. Thank you to Daniel Abraham for reading and chatting. You can grab a copy of his book, Age of Ash at your favorite local bookseller. Also, thank you to Sally Ann McCartan, Ellen Wright and Epidemic Sound. Production assistance is by Matt Keeley, Joni Deutsch, Madison Richards, and Morgan Swift from the Pogglomerate. Audio cleanup by Courtney Deans. Social media help from Sylvia Bell Till. Our production coordinator is Jordan Aaron. Our mix engineers, Tim Carplus. Editing, sound design, scoring, arranging, hosting, mixing, and mastering for this episode were done by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are myself, Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StoryboundPod. You can also tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. We have one more episode this season. It's coming out this Tuesday. Thanks for listening.